2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign and he reigned for 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land who spoke to David saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you. Thinking... David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the Milo and inward. So David went in and became great. And the Lord God of hosts was with him. Then Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also more sons and daughters were born to David. Now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Eleshua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphelet. Now, I know, you want to say elephant, but you have to just fight the feeling when you go there. And in verse 17, it says, Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, and the Philistines went up to search for David, and David heard of it and went down to the stronghold, the Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went to Baal, Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of the place Baal, Perazim, and they left their images there. 
And David and his men carried them away. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, and he said, You shall not go up. Circle around behind them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be, when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly, for then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord commanded him. And he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Getzer or Hetzer. In chapter 5, David is finally crowned the king. And the king needed a capital. And so David, and it would appear God, chose Jerusalem to be that capital. Now, we know that empires rise and fall, and the great empires of the world would have not taken notice of a shepherd boy who becomes a king. In this particular time period, it's about 1000 BC. To put it in perspective, the Egyptians have built a vast empire. The Hittites have built a vast empire to the north. As a matter of fact, this is the time according to best scholarship, that Troy is also at the height of its ascendancy, if you will. And so the capture of Jebus or Jerusalem wouldn't have been a big deal as far as the nations of the world were concerned. But David becoming a king and Jerusalem serving as David's capital is going to set in motion a series of events that are going to mark that king and that city as his kingdom and that city being the most important city in the whole wide world. Jerusalem, as you can imagine, is the most loved and the most hated city in the world. Jerusalem has been fought for, it has been fought over, it has been captured and burned 27 times in its history, and then rebuilt. The Jews have fought for the city against pagan invaders. Christians and Muslims have fought each other for a city whose name means the foundations of peace. John, in his vision in the book of Revelation, he sees a city come down from the sky and on the foundation is written the words, the new Jerusalem. The oldest reference, by the way, to the city is found in excavations in Egypt along with some other Palestinian cities. Um, A group of archaeologists found um, a series of figurines and on the figurines there was inscribed in the Egyptian language the names of the Palestinian cities and the oldest figurine dates to about 2000 BC or a thousand years before David captures it there was a figurine with the with the name Jebus that was inscribed on it and it was used for the purposes of black magic here's the theory the theory is that they would make a figurine that represented the people of that city and then they would inscribe the name of the city and then the high priest would take the figurine and smash it to the ground as a symbol of Egypt's ability to completely overwhelm 
any of its opposition. The city has been the center of love, of hate, and of superstition. So it begins with David being crowned. Look what it says. And this becomes the key right off the bat in the very opening verse of, the, of this particular chapter. It says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Remember, the, the, the son of Saul has been killed, Ishbosheth. The kings and the tribal leaders from the northern tribes have come and they've marched to Hebron. And basically, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. And it sounds like such a simple sentence, but if you look at 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, it tells the story of how these tribal groups marched to Hebron by the tens of thousands and the hundreds of thousands, and they gather at Hebron and they make the statement, we are bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. David begins his reign in Hebron. He remains there for seven and a half years. And the initial statement by all of the people is, we are family. I've got all my tribal people with me. But this idea is reiterated in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 30. Paul writing, he speaks to the body of Christ and he says, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. The people of Israel are saying, We recognize that you're a part of our family. And we are a part of your family. In the New Testament, Paul says... I recognize that you are a part of my family and I am a part of your family. We know that it was God's will that David would rule all Israel and we also know that it's Christ's will and God's will that the Lord Jesus be the Lord and the King of our life. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2, it says, Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. And so, again, the chieftains acknowledged the leadership of David that he was, by virtue of anointing and prophecy, that he is the expected king of Israel. And in verse 3, it says, Therefore, For all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. And so here is the idea. They acknowledged his right to rule, and that the right to rule came supernaturally. Now this becomes an important point from a Christian standpoint. Remember, In the New Testament, when Peter was speaking to the group of people after the the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, he says to everyone who's gathered, he says, This Jesus, God has made both Lord and King. And here, this David, God has made both Lord and King 
Earlier, he had been anointed, remember, when he was just a young boy by Samuel. But it is the acknowledgement of God that makes him king, and it's the anointing of the people that solidifies in the hearts and the minds of the people that he will, in fact, be king. But even there, there's a principle. It is God who chooses. It's God who raises up. It's God who anoints. It is God who appoints. And in ministry, guess what? That's the way that it really takes place. You know, we might think that it's the pastor who imparts some sort of gift to other people to give them the ability to serve or not serve, but nothing could be further from the truth. It is the Holy Spirit who gifts men and women for the work of the ministry, for the edification of the body. And so what we do as a congregation is we look around and we we say, who's praying for people? Who's ministering to people? Who's supporting people? Who's encouraging one another? Who's providing a basis of ministry? And guess what? As we look around and we see it, we as a congregation acknowledge what God has clearly compelled in the life of a particular person. So if you're wondering, how do I serve at Calvary? Here's how you serve, by serving. You serve by serving. You find, recognize, cultivate the gift that God has given you. And then we acknowledge it. And then look what it says in verse 4. It says, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. And so he gives you an idea of the length of his reign. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. And then it says in verse 6, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you thinking David cannot come in here the city, here's the idea the city is so strong that the Jebusites claim that if they had an army of blind and lame people they could defend Jerusalem but David saw that the water shaft could be climbed into the city and taken and again that information is, is found in the book of 1 Chronicles um, chapter 11 verses 4 through 9 but I want to bring something to your attention and that is When David becomes the king, he immediately moves the capital to Jerusalem. Now, you may not understand this, but remember, you have ten northern tribes and you have two southern tribes, if you will. And at this particular point in time and space and in history, Jebus, or also known as Jerusalem, is on the very frontiers of Judah and Benjamin. And so David acts with incredible insight to make this the military capital, to make this the political capital, and then eventually it will become the religious capital. And because it is the political capital and the military capital and the religious capital, all of the other little religious shrines and places of worship in the north and the south are going to collapse and Jerusalem is going to become the place where worship takes place. Now you also have to understand something else. That when Joshua 
was leading the children of Israel into the promised land. You all know the story about Moses and how he walked through the wilderness and how they wandered for 40 years and how they crossed the Jordan and Joshua goes in and they occupy the land and as they're occupying the land, they put out an assault on the city of Jebus and they're never able to capture it. And so it remains unconquered and it was believed that it was unconquerable. But it says in verse 7, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now this becomes an important point. David is going to be king. Jerusalem is going to be the capital. David is going to be the king and he's going to set in motion a series of circumstances where for 400 years his children are going to occupy the throne of Judah in Jerusalem. But also Jerusalem is going to be the place that becomes the center of attention and focus in a series of circumstances as you can well imagine those of you who are familiar with the Bible... After the kingdoms are split, there's going to be a series of invasions and captivities and circumstances that take place where Jerusalem is going to rise and fall and rise and fall. And eventually it is going to be the place where Jesus lives out the lion's share of his ministry. This is going to be the place where he teaches. This is going to be the place where he ministers. This is the place where he's going to be arrested and where he is going to be killed and where he's going to rise from the dead. And so you can imagine that God's plans and purposes are about to unfold. But it becomes again a type and a picture of when you become a Christian. You've heard my story over and over again. I've told you that one of the big reasons why I was so reluctant to be a Christian is because I knew that I wouldn't be a good one. I'm not good at being good. I'm very good at being bad. I'm not good at being good. I'm good at being wicked and selfish and self-serving. And so the idea of becoming a Christian and taking control over those wicked circumstances of my life seemed an impossibility. But one day I decided that I was going to make Jesus the king of my life. And it wasn't a decision where all of a sudden I just woke up and I said, I'm going to make Jesus the king of my life. I went to a concert. I heard music playing. I heard a person preaching. I heard a person preaching the gospel. I heard a person telling me the story of Jesus. I heard a person from John chapter 11 talking about the story of Lazarus. And you all know the story of how he died and he was stuck in a piece of dirt. And Mary and Martha, the sisters, say to Jesus, our brother is dead. And if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And you remember Jesus's words, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me will never die. And you'll remember that Lazarus said the, the, or Jesus said the words to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And you all know the story of how Lazarus, they rolled away the stone and he came hopping out in his grave clothes and he had been dead for four days. And it occurred to me, it occurred to me for the first time, it truly occurred to me that if Jesus could bring a man who had died and was rotting and his flesh was beginning to, to 
to corrupt and decay and he could bring him back to life that maybe he could take my stinking, decaying, wicked heart and bring me back to life. And someone suggested that I believe that and that I make Jesus both King and Lord of my life. And I did. And I offered up the sovereignty of my life to Jesus. Now, for those of you who have been Christians for just a very little while, and for those of you who have been Christians for a very long time, there's something startling that takes place when you become a Christian. There is a sense of washing and cleansing and joyous, glorious redemption that takes place in your heart. And then all of a sudden, wicked and disturbing things continue to go on in your life. You still think wicked and disturbing things. And you say wicked and disturbing things. And then you do wicked and disturbing things because as Jesus makes his claim over your circumstances, each and every one of you make a choice of whether or not you're going to relinquish control to Jesus, not just over what you think and what you say, but what you do and how you live and how you work. And all of a sudden, you're going to have to make decision after decision after decision of whether you want Jesus to control in that particular area of your life and I wish I could say to you and every single time I said okay but it wasn't true I didn't say okay every single time and when I refused to say okay in my life guess what the Lord did he stuck me on the shelf my prayers became empty and my heart became empty, and my circumstances became empty, and my ministry became empty, and sometimes there would be a whole day of darkness and emptiness, and sometimes there would be a whole week of darkness and emptiness, and sometimes there would be a whole month of darkness and emptiness, and sometimes it went on even longer than that. But when God shows up, and Jesus becomes Lord, you will be extended an invitation day after day and week after week and month after month. Will you allow Jesus to rule and reign in your life? Now it's interesting, in verse 8 it says, Now David said that day, whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame, the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. We know that Joab is the one who makes that, that claim. But here's the idea, that an unconquerable city becomes conquerable the moment that David is made king, and what couldn't be taken is now taken, and what couldn't be captured is now captured, and what couldn't be secured is now secured, and what couldn't take place in your life before Jesus showed up, the change in your thinking, the change in your speaking, the change in your living, where you thought, I can never, ever change. I'll never change. Things will never be different for me. Jesus shows up, and all of a sudden, everything is different. He secures the stronghold, and he establishes the base of sovereignty inside of your heart. Now, again... In verse 9, when it says that David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David, and David built all around from the Milo and inward. 
here is the idea. Um, how can I put this? The southern section of Jerusalem, J Jerusalem is like a, and Mount Zion is almost like a ship, and there's, there's valleys that surround it. There's the Kidron Valley and the Hinnom Valley, and it's like a big, giant ship, and it's almost impossible to storm. But David finds a way. He gets in through the plumbing. And the reason why I think this is so funny is because that's the way Jesus seems to get in. He gets in through the plumbing. He goes right into the depths of the circumstances, of the inward circumstances, and lives inside of you. Now, the choice of Jerusalem as capital is going to create a sense of unity for the northern tribes, the southern tribes. Jerusalem is easy to defend. And guess what else it has? It has a constant source of water. Some of you have actually gone through Hezekiah's tunnel, and you know that there are springs that well up inside of the city. And so, in order to have a capital... It needs to be well defended so that you can defend it. And number two, it has to be well watered. And that's exactly what Jerusalem is. So David establishes the city as the military capital, the national capital, the religious capital. And like I said, all of the other places will gradually shrink. And this will be the place where all of the action takes place. And in verse 10, it says, so David went in. Or David went on and became great. This is an understatement. And David went on and became great. And the Lord God of hosts was with him. No kidding. Here we are in the year 2010, and we have our Bibles open to 2 Samuel chapter 5, and we're still talking about the youngest son of Jesse who has now ascended the throne. You will remember in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, the prophet said, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him, that's David, leader of his people. God chose him, prepared him, anointed him. He's been running. He's been hurting. He's had horrible times and terrible circumstances. Those of you who have been following along in 1 Samuel and also in 2 Samuel, as you see the adventures of David and you see the pain and the hurt and the heartache and the blood and the guts and the pain and the sorrow, but now he is the king and David will expand Israel's borders. I want you to think for just a moment. The moment that David becomes king, Judah and Benjamin and the 12 or the 10 tribes to the north are united and all of a sudden the king kingdom stretches from Damascus all the way down to the Egyptian border. In other words, it began as, as a little kingdom that's about 6,000 square miles, and David blows it up to 60,000 square miles. Think of it. It goes from 6,000 to 60,000 square miles. David opens up the trade routes with the Hittites to the north, the Egyptians to the south, the Akkadians to the, to the east, and the, the Phoenicians and the, the people who are living in Sidon and Tyre to the north, and all of a sudden, he 
is now on the map. David subdues the enemies of Israel in a way that has never been seen since the conquest of Joshua. And clearly, David is a man of war. But he also has deep, deep spiritual concerns. David will write about the Messiah who will sit at the right hand of the Father forever. This Messiah would be both king and priest. He would be the mediator between God and man. And he writes about it in Psalm 110. And then David proclaims that strength comes from faith in the Lord and that God desires justice and peace. And David writes about a God who created all people with the desire to worship him with all of their heart. And David writes Psalm 18 and Psalm 19 and Psalm 27 and Psalm 123 and Psalm 122 and Psalm 138. David writes and writes and you know his words. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Not just a generation and not just a millennium, but people over and over and over hear his words. And David dared to write about a God, listen carefully, who could forgive your sin and redeem any situation. And for the person foolish enough to say, well, you don't understand my situation. And I say, read David's situation. (laughs) Do you want to go head to head with him in misery and pain and sorrow? And here he is, a person who writes about forgiveness and redemption. And look what it says. And the Lord God of hosts was with him. That's the difference, isn't it? It's the presence or the absence of God. It was Philip Howard who said, Can a man have real success apart from the conviction and fact that God is guiding his life? When you read those words, and the Lord God of hosts was with him, you know what it's supposed to do? It's supposed to prompt a question inside of your heart. Is the Lord God of hosts with me? Is this same God leading you and guiding you? Can you say with absolute confidence and certainty that David's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has become the sovereign king inside of your heart and that the Lord God of hosts is with you because the promise that Jesus made has been fulfilled in your life where he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Is the Lord God with you or have you refused? His sovereignty. Well, you know, I want him to be my Lord and I want him to be my Savior. But I don't want him to lead and guide me when it comes to my relationship. I don't want him to lead and guide me when it comes to my children. I don't want him to lead and guide me when it comes to my job. And I don't want him to lead and guide me when it comes to my future. But guess what? The plan is unfolding for David. And what's the plan? 
David is going to be the king. And it isn't simply for David's sake, but it is for the sake of all of the people of Israel. And that's what it says. So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. And it says in verse 11, Then Hiram, the king of Tyre, which is in modern-day Lebanon, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built... David a house so David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he that is the Lord God had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel in other words God was going to elevate it and God was going to protect it and God was going to nurture it and God was going to create a mechanism whereby a spiritual state could take place because God has an unfolding plan that isn't going to be simply satisfied in that generation but it's going to go on for future generations now this becomes important to you because when you become a Christian one of two things is going to happen people are going to see that you become a Christian and they're going to acknowledge the the lordship of Jesus in your life and they're going to help you with it But some people aren't going to help you with it. Some people are going to flat out discourage you. And some people are going to flat out attack you. And we're going to see that that's going to take place later on in the chapter. It says in verse 13, we we move from, from, from this particular section to David's children. And in verse 13, it says, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. Good thing or bad thing? Bad thing. This is a bad thing. Jewish kings were forbidden to multiply wives and horses and gold and silver. After he had come from Hebron, also more sons and daughters were born to David. Now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, not to be confused with the whale in San Diego. Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon, who will become the future king. Ibhar, Eleshua, Nephig, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphelet. Now, all, all in all, 11 of David's sons, including Solomon and Nathan, are born in Jerusalem. And even though he is going to go on to great things, he's also going to experience miserable things in his family. Because David doesn't care for his family the way that a family needs to be cared for. And it says in verse 17, Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, and David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now, different scholars believe different things. One group of scholars believes that this is a veiled reference to the rock city of Petra, not Petra, but of what will later become Masada in the Dead Sea. Others, and I think more likely because of the very um, context, is that this is Jebus. This is Jerusalem, the place where he is captured. This is the stronghold of the southern portion of the city. Then the Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley 
of Rephaim. And you've got to understand something. The Valley of Rephaim, if you're looking at a map, if you have a map in the back of your Bible, and if you look at Jerusalem from the way that the Mediterranean Sea, and you're looking at the Jerusalem, to the south of Jerusalem is the place where the Dead Sea is. To the north is where the Sea of Gal- the Galilee is. And the Valley of Rephaim is going to extend in the southern part of Jerusalem, so much so that it's going to literally come up almost to the walls of Jerusalem. Here is the idea. The Philistines are going to set up an encampment in the valley to overthrow David because now David is a threat. When he's the king of this little pauper place, he's really no threat. But the moment that he unites the kingdom and establishes a military and political and religious capital, he is an ongoing threat No sooner is David crowned king and the old enemy returns. And no sooner is Jesus crowned king in your heart and in your life and in your circumstances, the enemy returns. The enemy is content for you to be a closet Christian. The enemy is content for you to be um, a fair weather Christian. The enemy is content for you to be a Christian. Just keep your mouth shut. You're a Christian, but don't make any major decisions. You're a Christian, but don't live your life as if it's true. And so once again, David will face his enemy, the Philistines. And in verse 19, it says, So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? (laughs) Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. What has David learned? He's learned perhaps one of the most important lessons that any Christian can learn. And that is when you're facing your enemies... When the enemy has come against you because you purposed in your heart to know and love and serve and obey God, knowing that the enemy isn't going to be content for you to do that, David wants to know God's will. Lord, what is your will? What is your will for my life? Now remember, Saul had killed all of the priests. Abiathar, who has the ephod, The Ark of the Covenant still remains in the southern part. It's not in Jebus yet. It is not in Jerusalem yet. And remember, Abiathar has those two things called the Urim and the Thummim. On the ephod, he could inquire of the Lord and there was going to be a supernatural response. And most scholars believe that it was often just a series of yes or no questions. Can I go up against my enemies? Yes. Will I defeat my enemies? Yes. Now this this is so very important. We're left with this thought. David wants to know God's will. And the reason why David wants to know God's will isn't simply because he cares about God's, the circumstances for his life, but now he cares about all of the circumstances that have been entrusted to him. Do you want to know God's will? 
You see, sometimes we live in a world where we go, I'm afraid to ask God because I'm afraid he's going to say no. Have you ever been in that situation? I'm afraid to ask God about this relationship. I'm afraid to ask God about this marriage. I'm afraid to ask God about this job. I'm afraid to ask God, what if he sends me to Africa? I don't even know those people. And we suspect that ignorance of God's will will somehow make God's will go away. Or if we just simply say, look, I am going to do my very best under the circumstances and I'm going to ignore God's will. By the way, is remaining ignorant of God's will or trying to do your best a substitute for seeking God? It isn't. Each and every one of us have a responsibility to search him out. It's God who makes the rules. It's God who establishes the manner in which sinful people can come into his presence. It's God who has established the fact that we come to him on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. And so David does what David does. He inquires of the Lord. And look what it says. So David went to Baal Perazim. And David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore, he called the name of that place Baal Perazim. The issue would be like it's as if a flood was taking place. And I don't know if you've ever seen a massive amount of water move in a very short amount of time, but it can be overwhelming. And that's part of the point that David is making. He prays and the Lord gives him permission to give the Philistines a full frontal attack and he does and he defeats them. And then it says, and they left their images there. And David and his men carried them away. Do you understand verse 21? The idea is that in the midst of the battle, as the people of Israel are fighting the Philistines, the Philistines abandon their idols. They abandon the little figurines. They abandon the little idols that they pray to. And the idea is that the reason why they're abandoning the little idols is because they're not working. Have you ever heard someone say, why should I have anything to do? This just isn't working. You know, people think that religion is superstition. Maybe some of you grew up in a religious tradition where if you had a statue or an icon or a rabbit's foot and you rubbed it a particular way or you did something, in other words, you did whatever the superstition required you to do and then it didn't work. Maybe some of you grew up in a, a circumstance where you wanted to sell real estate. And so you go to the local real estate shop and they tell you to bury a statue of St. Anthony in the front yard so that the land will sell quickly. But it's a dead market and you have a dead saint buried in your yard. <laughs> and you go and you dig him up and you just go, dude, what good are you? Give me a little help here. But remember, that's exactly what they are. They're idols. They're fabrications. And guess what? 
we laugh. For you, it may not be something as crass as a statue or a piece of metal, but you have your own little idol that you fabricated in your own mind because you thought that the money would see you through or you thought that your integrity would see you through or you thought that this particular thing would see you through or that particular thing would see you through and that that was all that you needed, that you didn't really need God, that you had everything that you needed. You don't need Christ and you don't need forgiveness of sin and you don't need to go to church and you don't need to read your Bible because you have everything that you need. But all of a sudden, it doesn't work for you. And you abandon them because they're not working. They left their images there and David and his men carried them away. And in verse 22, it says, Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. This is what's interesting. When you become a Christian and you have a great victory, the, the devil shows up or some wicked agent of the devil shows up and tries to dissuade you from honoring, loving, obeying God. You say, you know what? Forget that. I am going to honor God and I am going to obey God and I am going to love God. And you win a gigantic battle and all of a sudden you go, hoo-hoo. Take that devil. And then all of a sudden the devil comes back. And you go, well, wait a minute, I thought you were defeated. Are you seriously telling me that this is going to be an ongoing battle? Do you mean that once I have overcome one trial, that it might be followed by numerous other trials? <laughs> well, that's exactly what happens. The fact that David defeats the Philistines doesn't mean that the Philistines give up. In verse 22, it says they went once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim once again. And in verse 23, it says, therefore David inquired of the Lord. And he said, you shall not go up. Circle around behind them and come up upon them in front of the mulberry trees. Now, this is the important principle. Some of you might think, oh, I prayed before. This is no big deal. I don't have to pray again. The Bible says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. I've read it. I don't have to pray about it anymore. I don't have to seek God on how to deal with this particular problem. But here's the idea. Once again, David inquires of the Lord. David seeks God's advice again. David seeks God's guidance again. Because this becomes an important issue. The Lord is going to lead David in a fresh way because of new circumstances. Do you realize that sometimes God wants to lead you in a new way? In fresh circumstances? That even though the enemy might be the same and even the tactic might be the same, but the way that you deal with this enemy has changed because, guess what? God has a new plan because of a new circumstance. The first attack was a full frontal attack. The second attack is going to be a surprise attack from the rear. Alan Redpath writes, and I love what he says, victory was communicated to David in the first place by prayer. Alan Redpath's from England. Alan Redpath says, David inquired of the Lord, 2 Samuel 5, 19 and 23. 
On both occasions here, when the enemy came to attack, we find David went right to his knees and said, Now, Lord, I look to you. My friend, it is just as well he did so on both occasions. For do you notice that the divine strategy for victory in the first instance was totally different from the strategy in the next? The first time he was to, told to go and wait. If David followed the strategy of yesterday in the battle of today, he would have missed the divine resources and would have been humiliated by defeat. Yesterday's resources may not be what you need for today's battle. Doesn't it make perfect sense to you that you need to pray today? That's sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. In his commentary on this passage, Adam Clark noted the remarkable guidance of God in David's life. And he asked a good question, quote, How is it that such supernatural directions and assistances are not communicated now? Because they're not asked for. And they're not asked for because they're not expected. And they're not expected because men have not faith. And they have not faith because they're under a refined spirit of atheism and have no spiritual intercourse with their maker. It was Clark's way of saying the reason why there isn't a supernatural guidance and deliverance that's given is because we're not asking. That prayerlessness becomes the deepest tragedy of our personal and corporate life. And you're under attack. Remember what praying does. It acknowledges that you can't, but God can. And in verse 24 it says, and it shall be. It shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees. Then you shall advance quickly, for then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. This is very interesting. Spurgeon, a long time ago, writing on this particular passage, said, quote, As the rabbis have it, and it is a pretty a very pretty conceit if it be true. The footsteps of angels walking along the tops of the mulberry trees make them rustle. That was the sign for them to fight when God's cherubim were going with them and when they should come. And who can walk through the clouds and fly through the air led by the great captain himself walking along the mulberry trees so as to make them rustle by their celestial footsteps. Here's what he's saying. Do you remember in the New Testament when the apostles and the disciples are all gathered together in the upper room and they hear a mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire appear because it's the supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit that's what he's talking about you pray you pray and God gives an answer and here's part of God's answer I'm going to deliver you in a supernatural way I'm going to do something amazing. I'm going to send angels to intervene on your behalf. And then there's a group of people who say, I don't believe that. That's nonsense. That's, you're talking crazy now. So let me ask you a question. How is fighting the devil and fighting your flesh 
and fighting your passions and fighting your desires and the resources and the tools that you've applied for yourself. How is that working out for you? How's the drugs and the alcohol working out for you? How's the counseling sessions working out for you? How's Oprah working out for you? All of a sudden, the supernatural provision of God by the power of the Holy Spirit is looking pretty inviting. Trap writes, at the signal that the Lord was at work, David and his troops rushed forward to victory. This principle is true in our everyday walk with God. When we sense that the Lord is at work, when we, that's when we advance quickly and we'll see a great victory won. We must also in the spiritual warfare observe and obey the motions of the Spirit when he sets up his standard. For those are the sounds of God's going. It's the footsteps of the anointed. It's In a way, it's his way of saying, listen for the supernatural footsteps of a powerful host that's going to come to your assistance. Again, Spurgeon writes, when we see the work of God happening around us, it's like the sound in the mulberry trees. The rustling sound should awaken us to prayer and devotion. At a time of crisis or tragedy, it's like the sound of the mulberry trees. The rushing sound should awaken us to confession and repentance. When you hear the wind blowing, when you feel the earth shaking, when you see the circumstances coming undone, Here's the idea. It's to awaken you and say, Lord, I confess my need for you. I confess my desire to be led by you and instructed by you and guided by you. Spurgeon writes, now what should I do? The first thing I will do is I will bestir myself. Now that's an old English expression. I will bestir myself. In the old King James, that's what it says. But here is the idea. It isn't me telling you what to do. It's you telling your own heart, I'm going to get going now. I'm going to start praying I'm going to start relying on the guidance of God. I'm going to start relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. Spurgeon writes, but how shall I do it? Why, I will go home this day. And I will wrestle in prayer more earnestly than I have been wont to do that God will bless the minister and multiply the church. (laughs) He's in it for himself. Yeah. I want, I want you to go home and I want you to pray for me. And I want you to pray for the work of God in the church. Why? Because the work of God in the heart of the saint is going to create a mechanism whereby the supernatural answers to prayer Come and look at verse 25. And David did so as the Lord commanded him. 
And he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Getzer. You may not understand this, but there's a thing called the Shephelah, which is the coastal plain of Philistia. And this is where the Philistine stronghold was. Here is the idea. They left the kingdom of Israel and they left the kingdom of David and they went back to the place where they were strong because they were no longer strong in David's kingdom. Is Satan strong inside of your heart or inside of your family or inside of your circumstances? Has the wickedness and the pain and the tragedy come to a head and you want desperately for the things of Satan and for the things of the flesh to no longer be a part of your life? Are you willing To concede that Christ has always been and should always be the rightful king of your heart. Is there some area of sovereignty where you refuse to relinquish? Are you still struggling with the idea of letting him be the Lord over that particular area of your life or that particular area of your thought life or that particular area of your entertainment or that particular area of your job or that particular area of your circumstances? Guess what? So long as you refuse to grant him sovereignty, you allow the enemy a foothold in a place where the enemy does not belong. Jesus is in your heart. Jesus is the Lord of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we see as we look at David's kingdom and David's children, And David's conquest. That Lord we see the parallel that's taking place in our own heart. It's the kingdom of Christ. It's our own children. Will they be a lasting legacy for the future? Lord is our house a Christ centered home or a child centered home? Are we going to allow the living Lord to be sovereign both in our heart and in our home and in our ministry and in our church? Lord, are we willing to ask you for help? And are we willing to ask over and over and over again knowing that today's battle requires fresh resources? And Lord, for that person who's struggling with so many different issues and painful problems and circumstances, Lord, I pray that at least they would begin with this simple prayer. Heavenly Father, I want Jesus to be the sovereign king in my life. I want to give him control over what I think, over what I see, over what I hear over what I say, and over what I do. Mold me, shape me, lead me, guide me, direct me in the way that you want me to go. Lord, I need fresh resources 
even a supernatural resource for the battle, for the assault that's taking place right now. And Lord, I pray that you would do exactly that, that you would listen to that man, that you would listen to that woman, that Lord, in the sincerity of their heart as they cry out to you, Lord, I pray that you would minister to them and speak to them and provide an answer for them. And victory for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.